we don't have to get crazy with this pregnant people stuff oh god was because you know that makes it a culture wars issue and there's it's like well abortion is healthcare and healthcare is never political and it's like <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> right now um <laughs> it doesn't matter my twitter bio says freelance gra- freelance graduate school applicant um, <laughs> um, but actually all my applications are in so that's not even true well yeah, what would you say you're you write uh i yeah i mean i i i, I do the like writer researcher organizer thing okay i like that perfect that's, that's, that's i'm easy. a triple yeah. threat Anyway. <laughs> exactly. So Broadway. This is incredibly know, yeah. Broadway. Sorry, already. I'm revealing my Peter Kid roots here. Um, all right. Welcome to the Death Panel. Today we have a very special interview. Friend of the show, writer, researcher, organizer with Decrim New York, and uh, also soon to be studying or studying epidemiology. Please welcome Noah Zazanis. Noah, Hi. what's up? Um, hey. Not much. Hey, Happy Noah. to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Good to have you. So glad to have you. We're really excited to have you on because uh, recently you published your uh, a, a peer-reviewed study in IBIS, which is, um, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's a journal of reproductive health, which was called Beyond Women's Health, the Imperative for Transgender and Gender Non-Binary Inclusion in Reproductive Healthcare. First of all, congrats. The study Thank was you. fantastic. Yeah. Congrats to you and your co-authors. It was amazing. Yeah. So um, IBIS is an organization I co-authored with, but they're an organization based in the Bay Area, California, and Cambridge, boston area. Um, we published in a journal of obstetrics and gynecology, which is cool because yeah. that means you know like doctors and shit not not just people sort of already in the repro health milieu but well yes <laughs> repro health but like the what also, we call repro yeah. health meaning like abortion and contraception but obstetricians right. and gynecologists more generally um, it's not like going straight to verso and skipping the whole clinician side or research <laughs> side you did yeah. your you did your you put in your years i mean it's like even i think Beyond like the Verso world, you know, there's the NGO abortion world is very separate from a lot of the obstetricians and gynecologists who Mm -hmm. very distinctly do not do abortion, you know. And so because this article was not just about that, although it was put out by a lot of people sort of in the vaguely feminist sexual reproductive health world, it's just cool that it was able to get out to more doctors. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a really comprehensive study uh, in it. You guys break down a couple different specific areas in order to sort of analyze the ways that our current both like health finance but also like clerical and record system and way of educating doctors just is completely absolutely inadequate for accommodating anything other than like a very singular uh sort of cis uh white female identity yeah well and the focuses of our research too. right exactly right. the focuses yeah. of research as well do you think for listeners maybe you could give them a background on sort of like 
where your academic practice and research focus has been, and then maybe a quick little intro to um, how you guys decided to go for this study in the first place. Sure. So um, in undergrad, I actually studied psychology, um, and I got involved in a lot of undergrad research involving pain psychology and health disparities within chronic pain. Hmm. I had done organizing around sexual reproductive health, abortion, um, sexual health around sex education for a very long time since high school, basically, ended up getting the job at the Guttmacher Institute, which is an organization that researches sexual and reproductive health from a demographic lens. While working there, they were kind of doing some internal reckoning with language around trans issues. And that was ended up having a lot of conversations I had just on an informal basis with bosses and other employees, um, other workers, you know, and I did not do this work as part of Guttmacher. Um, I research assistants don't really publish there, but as part of Guttmacher, I was sent to a conference um, in Chicago, which was a National Abortion Federation Conference. There was some of the scientists, researchers from IBIS doing a panel on some of their research in transsexual reproductive health, which at that point, they were just in the early stages of. And that's associated with the PRIDE study, which is a more general LGBTQ health study. Um, I reached out to them beforehand because I was familiar with some of their work and figured they might be there. And in the process, once we actually got there, I started talking about how I had been meaning to write a commentary on mostly language use, just around some very mm-hmm. basic questions I kept getting. You know, that I think some of the more activisty sides of the abortion and contraception world have been having these conversations, but because of the nature of like the research we're doing and the confusion around like who even our samples or populations are, it's been taking a little longer in like the scientific and clinical worlds. Yeah. Which sort of assume that these categories just like exist in, in like very, very easy to like find and use, but, but it's <laughs> right, like, Oh yeah, yeah. When you have a system that like is generated this bias and inequality for you, it's like, Oh yeah, actually data harder to collect. Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so in the process of talking, they were also working on a commentary about inclusion more generally. And so I was like, cool, can I get involved in that? So we ended up working together, which was very cool. Heidi Moseson is first author on that, and I second authored it. And then Juno Oliver, who is a gynecologist with the UCSF University of California, San Francisco, I guess last authored, which is something that exists in the health world. (laughs) I don't really get authorship guidelines, but. (laughs) So there's been, I guess, for too many years now, sort of an ongoing conversation in like sort of liberal abortion oriented reproductive rights world and less so in sort of what we would consider the reproductive justice sphere. Um, And I'll get into that Mm -hmm. distinction, but organizations like Guttmacher, like NARAL, like other such orgs, big nonprofits have been sort of struggling with, okay, how do we, or do we use trans inclusive language and specifically what are the stakes of talking about pregnant people versus talking about women or, and that, you know, I had made a Twitter thread saying that it actually is a little context dependent because I was seeing some of the backlash from some feminists being like, oh, well, we erase the stakes of misogyny when we talk about pregnant people instead of women, particularly in terms of legislation. So at that point, I guess some of the questions that kept coming up were, how do we clarify the political stakes that this isn't actually a gender neutral issue, even if we're using gender neutral language? You know, it can be all genders, Mm -hmm. but it's attacks on abortion are targeting women. That is the intent, even if they end up affecting trans people Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Right. You know, 
trans people who are not women. And I guess in the in the research and demography, you know, population survey world specifically, there were a lot of questions about how do we work with census data that doesn't ask gender identity? Or, you know, if we make statistics about, oh, certain percent of women have had abortions, we can't just change that to people because then, you know, your denominator is different. (laughs) Because if you're not including cisgender men, you have to say that because the numbers are just, (laughs) yeah. So I guess at that point, we had been having in, internal conversations at Guttmager, and Ibis was already doing this work. Um, I'm trying to tell this story in a way that isn't totally throwing shade at my past employer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like trying not to be messy. <laughs> <laughs> Should I cut that out? Or? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. I'll what ask you messy? later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like on the. I'm in the hot seat right now. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I think so. I ended up kind of going off script and working with Ibis on this, um, which now I guess now that I'm a free agent, we'll probably be collaborating a little bit more. <laughs> but yeah, so some of what I ended up contributing was in the research area specifically some analysis of our nationally representative surveys, which is what I became familiar with through my work at Guttmacher. Specifically, the behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, which, yes. unlike you know the census, focuses more specifically on what the public health world would consider various health risk factors. So, chronic disease risk, you know, heart disease, mm-hmm. diet, um, and also a series of questions about contraception, about HIV risk, and they also in thirteen originally thirteen states. Now, I think it's expanded to quite a few more states. They did ask have an optional added section about gender identity and sexual orientation that states could choose whether to include. Um, So, (laughs) however, I noticed when just like looking at the data for fun, because I'm a nerd, I noticed that the way they were measuring gender didn't necessarily, the way they were measuring gender identity didn't necessarily measure with the ways they were measuring sex. And that didn't necessarily measure with the ways they were measuring contraception. (laughs) So, for example, they they have a question about sex, but they don't define their terms there. So there are p- participants who answered a gender identity question as I'm a trans woman, but answered her sex as female, which is not something that the survey writers predicted would happen, um, right. which is right. whatever, you know, I would answer my sex as male on the census. I did, but like, because of that, there was a whole set of people who got asked contraception questions who never would have had the capacity to be pregnant and a whole set of people who didn't get asked contraception questions who could potentially be getting pregnant. There were people whose sex was recorded as women who answered partner had a hysterectomy to method of contraception. And that kind of leaves like, okay, what are we talking about there? You know, just what does that refer to? Are these gay people? Are these Mm -hmm. trans people? Are these all of the above, you know? Um, Right. So that was able to add a little more depth to the level of actual measurement questions, which is something I had no interest in before Guttmacher and have gotten really nerdy about (laughs) since working there because that's, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole biopolitics to it, right? Like how we measure people. Yeah. And there's... I don't know, there's always wars, especially around the census with trans people of like, do we want the most accurate measurements for the most accurate health results or are we more worried about surveillance? You know, and <laughs> well, right. And it's sort of like I always find it interesting that like so the Office of Management and Budget has like a statistical directive on race. That's right. like on every single survey that the federal government asks, it has right. to ask race in basically the same way. Yes. But the same is not true right. on either sex or 
or gender. And then if you look just at all of the, I mean, so like the BRFSS has the, do you consider yourself to be transgender question? Right. Yes. And then there's like the three, the three responses is like, yes, transgender, male to female. Yes. Transgender, female to male. Yes. Transgender, gender nonconforming. But then like, that's not consistent at all with the other. I mean, there's like no consistency. It seems like of course, yeah. in the other. And like, is mm-hmm. it the case that like the BRFSS is like, that's the, is that like the best that the federal government has to offer? Or are there better <laughs> surveys that it does? Like As with regard to gender identity, that's the best nationally representative survey. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. I, which is very frustrating. <laughs> right. I was going to say <laughs> the, the NSFD, the national survey of family growth is the big demography survey. And that's uh-huh. what Gumacher uses a lot of. That's what people use as sort of a national baseline for a whole lot of population research and as a comparison for survey research. And that mm-hmm. recently ish started asking about sexual orientation still doesn't ask about gender, doesn't even ask about, you know, how they would define sex. They make judgments based on, I think, tone of voice, actually. We had to wow. do some sleuthing as, on Guttmacher to find out how they even get that wow. information. Huh. So wow. they just don't ask that. Um, and, <laughs> and there was very little transparency. We had to personally call the office to figure out, like, how are you figuring out the sex of the respondent? Sounds like reliable data to me. <laughs> yeah. pass- and that's just we're totally subjective. We're figuring it out by, by passing judgment while we're on the phone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're using a very sophisticated methodology called our own biases. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's the three-point bigot rule, you know? <laughs> and it's the bias of the interviewer, too, who could just be anyone hired, you know? Um, which, <laughs> um, and I, I don't even think it's necessarily enforced consistently because it can also be based on if if you get someone who can't answer the survey and is asked to pass it on to either a head of household or, you know, a woman in the house, um, depending on what questions they're asking, that also is going to depend on how that person perceives someone's gender more so than voice. So right. I think there might be, there's might be like a flow chart somewhere of how they make this decision, but it's a very secret oh flow God. chart. Um, <laughs> and so Locked I, in sub-basement X. <laughs> Yeah, boy, between that and uh, all the events of the past week, I'm starting to starting to think the federal government has a real sex problem, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, IBIS, I think in general and UCSF, the work they're doing, I collaborated on this commentary. They're doing a lot broader work. Um, with the Pride study data where they had a supplemental survey asking a lot of in-depth questions about sexual and reproductive health of trans people. Um, I wasn't involved in planning that. I answered it. And (laughs) I'm going to be able to work with that data eventually, which is super exciting. But that asked a lot of questions that just really hadn't been asked on that broad of a level, you know, thousands of respondents of trans people. Um, and specifically yeah. focus on trans people who had the capacity to get pregnant, you know, assign generally female assigned trans people. Um, right. I don't, you know, it asks about intersex variations, but I'm not sure how that played into the screening process. Um, so it asked a whole series of questions about sexual behavior, um, use of contraception, experiences with um, abortion and experiences with sexual and reproductive health providers. They haven't published any results of that yet. I think they're still working on a data analysis. There's going to be a ton of data analyses done, you know, secondary analysis as well. I hope to do some of that in grad school, hopefully um, work with that data set. But what they have published is this commentary, you know, with me, and then also some really interesting work on how they've, 
use terminology, which, you know, again, is always the, the big discussion, I think, with trans research, which actually I think we should broaden the discussion beyond terms. But in this case, it was very useful because it wasn't just, okay, how do we ask people about their genders, but also mm-hmm. how do we refer to people's bodies in the survey? So the theory was, you know, we're going to have happier respondents, we're going to have less attrition because it's a longitudinal study, and we're going to have more accurate responses if we ask people about anatomy, about sexual experiences based on terms that they're actually okay with that aren't going to cause people dysphoria and make them hate answering the survey because it's a, sort of a long segment. So they used, a, I think the word they used was a pipe-in system, yes, where they'd ask you, they'd basically describe like a vagina and be like, this is, you know, referred to in medical terminology as, what terms do you use? And then using some complicated JavaScript, they'll pipe it into um, the rest of the survey so that it uses whatever terms you prefer. <laughs> and so they've they've published just information on how they did that as sort of a guideline for other organizations. I don't know. Again, I don't imagine a lot of the huge orgs will be doing that either because they lar- mostly work with nationally representative data sets, you know, census type things, um, OMB type population research, or just because they're not interested in doing that kind of work. Um, I think at the NGO level in the sexual reproductive health world, IBIS is IBIS is the main org doing this, and they're collaborating with the Pride study. There are definitely individual researchers at institutions and different, you know, schools of public health, schools of nursing, med schools that are more focused on serving trans people in various capacities. But it's still, I think, trans health in general is considered a pretty niche thing, and then trans sexual and reproductive yeah. health, especially. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is I, I sent your I sent the study to a couple of people, and one of the things that they were that I heard over and over again was wait we don't collect this data this isn't a thing i i didn't realize this medical records thing was a problem yeah. you know the yeah. the sort of at the intake point in almost every aspect of healthcare we have these sort of like arbitrary uh demographic reporting right, right that yeah. doesn't have like a huge bearing on actually how you treat the person except right. for in very specific yeah. instances And some of the things like the coding system is tied to that demographic data. So one of the things that you guys mentioned in the study is that in a lot of electronic medical records, basically when you when you select the gender that allows you to have access to certain billing codes. So if someone has like a female gender but needs a prostate exam, their chart will not display the prostate exam and the doctor can't built for it and like the most popular pervasive widely used and absolutely terrible medical records program is epic and they're one of the ones that does that so it's it's interesting how just the smallest thing like you know being you know ignorant and not caring (laughs) how you collect this data like has the most immense downstream applications when it comes to like day-to-day people needing yeah. Like healthcare. There's like there's a great uh, screenshot in the, that's like the first figure in the study. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's love. a screenshot from put that Epic. In there. Yeah, from <laughs> Epic, the like the biggest uh, you know med- medical um, what was it? What are they called again? Medical chart. Uh, 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 electronic medical records yeah the biggest like electronic medical records company and it's like for uh getting an iud inserted and it literally just says like error like this (laughs) this code is not valid for the patient's sex like (laughs) right (laughs) error you can't do this to this like what (laughs) 
I mean, prove me wrong, Epic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Fucking watch me. Like the electronic medical <laughs> records themselves. Um, that sort of like the adoption of that was something that was part of the ACA, you know, the idea of yeah. the portable medical record and being able to sort of like enforce people having the right gender on their medical records. But right. the problem is it's designed by people who don't care about trans people and don't understand trans people. And their data is, you know, collected by people who don't understand or care about trans people. <laughs> and the yeah. ending result <laughs> is this like absolutely unbelievably ridiculous and depressing sort of like binary issue when it comes right. to just medical coding billing right, exactly. you know and and of, of course it's a big insurance issue especially for services that are considered sexed because people will be told like oh this pap smear isn't covered because your legal sex is male and you know so you're right. it's being registered as fraud for example because you couldn't have possibly needed this procedure <laughs> um and then people will have to like go through their medical records and be like okay you see how i'm taking testosterone you know, kind of, like prove through their medical records that they're trans um which when well, it can be a frustrating appeal process yeah I mean, not to mention the fact that, like, just the simple act of, like, interacting with a provider often will involve either the, like, receptionist, like, misgendering you or using, like, someone's dead name or just, like, one of the things that's, like, talked about also is just the aesthetics of, like, the waiting room of, like, many reproductive health places. They're, you know, pink or they only have uh, photos of women or it's, you know, a women's health center. And, you know, people will act super weird at you if you're walking into that space trans and then on top of it, your insurance is going to deny the claim. Like, what a fantastic way to discourage people from dealing with their reproductive health, you know? Right. And even, you know, beyond the contraception and abortion sort of reproductive sphere, you know, in the, or I guess, pregnancy related sphere and pregnancy prevention specifically or mm-hmm. mitigation <laughs> pregnancy mitigation I am, <laughs> that's not a word pregnancy <laughs> pregnancy project management maybe fetus eating <laughs> <laughs> so but yes even beyond that you know things like cervical exams that in general a lot of trans men and trans masculine people don't really want to do um might right. put off for a while are they're more we're you know, much more likely to put it off if we have a provider who's going to be very weird about our gender in the process or a waiting room that's going to be a hostile environment. You know, I've heard mm-hmm. of people just getting stared down in gynecologist's office, says, you know, um, yeah. and that's that's obviously, you know, it's already a stressful exam, I think, for anyone. Um, and but especially if you have dysphoria and then, you know, social hostility on top of that or a provider who just doesn't know how to deal with your identity or even your body. You this research that you're you're doing and also some of the the writing that you've done raises this really like imp- I think it was a really important kind of question which is I think when we think about the sort of traditional modes of activism, you know, we think about that the targets are like in the streets or, or you know, maybe you get Congress to slide in some provision on something or right. you know, maybe mm-hmm. uh, allocate some kind of money to something or maybe even you file a brief in, you know, federal court right. and yeah. eventually like, you know, you you have a, a, a you know a legal victory. But the stuff that you're talking here, like getting something included, uh getting a line included on like a medical billing you know, metadata, right. uh, or, uh, making sure that the CDC and, and other like federal statistical agencies are actually doing the kind of work that actually makes 
people visible, like legible. And like, right. how does one organize in those domains? Right. That's like a very different kind of politics. And it's a very different right. kind. Like it's, 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 it strikes people. I think as B is saying is like, as we have to do like this is actually a thing that we have to do yeah. um but it is right and yes. i'm like curious what your what your thoughts are on that right so i guess just because of sort of the bifurcation of work and life under capitalism i've had to tackle that from <laughs> different spheres and my sort of internal project my reckoning has been okay how do i combine my organizing work or <laughs> reconcile it with my academic work or my you know my NGO employment at that point, um, because like you said, it is a very specific sort of politics being like, okay, our survey should ask this questions and providers mm-hmm. should do this, you know, providers should ask these questions, right. providers should treat patients right. this way. There's, and there's sort of, I guess, a, for lack of a better word, a top down and bottom up approach you can take. And for example, I know people who are working at Harvard Medical School and working on medical education, just trying to get, trying to, you know, reform medical education in various ways Mm -hmm. to have more education about trans non-binary identities um, and kind of hoping that'll trickle down to patient care, you know, which I think, I think is important, (laughs) but also not necessarily going to happen. Um, Right. We can't, we can't just like cross our fingers and wait 150 years for doctors to collectively like get their shit together as, <laughs> right, as an yeah. academic right. institution um, globally. Like, I, right. I don't think we have to se- like settle for that kind of right. incrementalism. And then there's sort of the regulatory approach you can take of like, okay, well, we're going to make discrimination illegal. And I don't know, I've only <laughs> lived in states where, luckily for me, I guess, I've only lived in states like Maryland or New York where discrimination against trans people was already formally illegal in healthcare. Um <laughs> at least when I was out as trans and obviously people are still getting discriminated against in healthcare, you know, Um, (laughs) clearly. Um, Newsflash. Yeah. I think, well, I do see a lot of purpose to, you know, research on and by and for trans people, I guess emphasis on the by and for nowadays, especially. I've also trying to be thinking more about like, okay, what is the purpose of this research? And so in this case, it is targeting researchers, medical professionals trying to get some mm-hmm. structural reforms in more broadly the way data is collected, the way care is practiced, which I, you know, right. would prefer, I find more useful than doing sort of implicit bias or explicit bias trainings on just like, <laughs> here's what a gender is right. for doctors, you know, although although there are more specific aspects of trans health that I think definitely do need to be talked about. Like there's no reason <laughs> primary care providers can't provide hormones. They just kind of freak out when they think about it. So they don't, even though they would prescribe it to like a menopausal cis woman. Right. Which um, is such bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, if you have low T, you can get a prescription. Um, right. But you have low T and you're a cis man. I think you can do it like online now too. From like yeah, through one Roman of those, or like, one of those male- services. <laughs> Yeah, like um, hymns or something. You just right, have to be yeah. like, I'm, I'm not feeling myself. And they're like, do you want testosterone? We'll <laughs> ship it to you. Although since right. COVID now, you can get some hormones online, which is Fantastic. I think kind of yeah. hopefully something that sticks around after. Sort of a similar thing phenomenon is happening with you know, more popularized telemedicine in, for abortion in states where that's legal, um, which a lot mm-hmm. of places it's restricted just for the sake of, you know, restricting abortion. But um, <laughs> it is the kind of thing where both abortion and trans healthcare are relatively simple medical procedures, you know, or, you know, medical processes. And I guess tra- I was specifically referring to hormones, but I shouldn't say trans health more broadly, but they're relatively specific 
processes that because of, you know, social attitudes and just because of what gets put in medical curriculums that people don't really know about or doctors mm-hmm. specifically don't know how to do or don't want to do. And so there's sort of that medical education approach. There's the, you know, trying to change hospitals, et cetera. And then there's kind of what I've been more curious about, which is trying to get more on the ground organizing focused at the healthcare system and focused at, I guess, direct action for trans people's experiences of care, um, which is so in, in sort of the abortion world, there's been doulas for a while. There's birth doulas as well for dealing with, um, for mitigating maternal mortality and um, medical malpractice for black women's pregnancies. um, And, There's been a lot of conversations about what would it look like to have trans healthcare doulas just for for hormones or for regular doctor's appointments, you know, sort of providing mutual aid to just help advocate for trans people in healthcare settings. Some of this already exists through orgs like the Kentucky Health Justice Network, which has been sort of at the forefront of in the abortion fund world, drawing connections between trans healthcare and abortion. So they'll fund hormones and they'll fund abortions, you know, and will also provide accompaniment and support for both types of, you know, medical procedures and processes, which I think is really exciting because I do see a lot of political alignment, even though those movements are not always associated, whether it's because of like bad blood or just grant money, you know, right. mm-hmm. um, especially in the nonprofit mm-hmm. world. I think there's also just a lot of what I would call, what we would call, I guess, social reproduction um, happening among trans people informally. So, you know, mutual aid, I suppose, too, happening around which healthcare providers are safe to go to. You know, who do we like? Who do we not like? You know, I've always been a part of, not always, but since coming out as trans, I've been a part of various trans Facebook groups where it's just like, okay, who do you go to for hormones? Who do you go to for? Right, you have to. Right, exactly. You know, Um, and... But that's still, you know, having that quote unquote choice is an aspect of your insurance or usually insurance or whether you can go out of network, et cetera. And obviously that's options that a lot of people don't have, which is why some of the specifically some of the reforms targeted at orgs like Planned Parenthood have been super important because those are mm-hmm. organizations that offer low income health care. Yeah. And I think some because Planned Parenthood is federated, some Planned Parenthood locals have at least their health care centers are federated. Some state and regional Planned Parenthoods have made more progress on how they ask about gender and how they train their staff et cetera, than others. I've had really good experiences going to Planned Parenthoods for reproductive health care. I've heard people in other states or other just regional Planned Parenthood networks who've had really horrible experiences associated with their gender. So, yeah. I mean, have you have you run into people being have you run into some of those exclusionary radical feminists who have been <laughs> actually kind of upset at the sort of movement to to make repro like a more fair yeah. Um, um, medicalized sphere, shall we say? <laughs> so I think in the nonprofit world, people are very afraid to be openly transphobic, you know, so we don't That's get a lot true. of that. Yeah. We get a lot of what I would consider concern trolling of, well, what if other patients are uncomfortable with it? You know, we want to make this a safe space for everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And I'm like, okay, so an abortion clinic is already sort of an unsafe space for someone who's really socially conservative. And if they're coming in here, they're already... Say 
dealing with that hurdle, you know, right. already like. Also, like, I feel like most people in an abortion clinic are kind of focusing on themselves while they're in the right. waiting room. Yes. They're not really like <laughs> right. looking at other patients, like trying to judge them yeah. and feel unsafe. <laughs> they're trying to like focus on the task at hand. They probably right, were yes. harassed. I think especially people who have, especially yeah. people who have some cognitive dissonance for abortion. Well, that's not, I, I say that, but at the same time, I've heard providers who are like, yeah, I was giving this woman an abortion and she yelled at me about like, how can you do this the whole time? <laughs> um, which, so I shouldn't say what? they're not going to be judging because that's wow. not necessarily what happens. Um, but, but yes, I think ultimately, of course, you know, the barriers of seeing a gender question that confuses and upsets you is less of a barrier than having a hostile or just confused practitioner or mm-hmm. not having your gender asked about at all. Um, right. Yeah. The other one of the other barriers we get is just like, well, how much of an issue is this? You know, how many trans <laughs> people are really getting abortions? Which is, you know, kudos I can give to Guttmacher is on their recent abortion provider census, they did ask, to your knowledge, how many how many trans and gender nonconforming people have you served? And the number they mm-hmm. got, which we just published a short brief on, was you know somewhere in the four hundred fifties for the U.S. Mm. Um, which obviously it's way more than that, right. but the fact that to the knowledge of providers, 450 trans and gender nonconforming patients were treated is still significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Right. Because yeah. I think most people who don't have to would probably not come out to their abortion provider. <laughs> yeah. I, so, no, exactly. You know, um, if you're seeing someone, you know, once or, you know, once per pregnancy um, or twice, if you have, <laughs> you know. Um, twice I mean, if they make you wait 72 hours. Right, exactly. Like. Yeah, sometimes they do, you know, sometimes more than that. Um, but what I'm trying to say, if you're not having a long-term relationship with your provider, you're probably not going to try to have that conversation with them. So the people who are coming out are likely going to be people on hormones or for whom their gender is some is relevant in some way to the, you know, to yeah. the abortion care happening. And they do say, you know, Guttmacher, Rachel Jones is the main author. She does say in the report, this is an undercount, but it's significant that that even happened at a national level because it kind of shuts up the people who are like, well, no trans people are really having abortions, right? That's just not something that happens. (laughs) Like how right-wingers on Twitter will be like, oh, you know, you call yourself a disabled person of color. Like, how can you have all those identities at once? (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, I mean, it's it's crazy. It's funny because even though technically in the United States to be trans, you do not have to be sterilized, unlike countries like Japan. I think a lot of people just assume that the moment you decide to become trans you no longer have reproductive health needs right. whatsoever yes. you no longer can get pregnant you can no longer make anyone pregnant you are now trans and you are no longer in their worldview as being someone who can make workers shall we say um, <laughs> and more than that you should have I think, the needs they expect you to have right and more than that there are questions about even among doctors and even among trans people, a lot of people just don't know how how likely it is that you'll get pregnant on testosterone, how compatible birth control is with testosterone therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard it with 100% certainty from two different doctors who provide trans healthcare. Yes, you can be on hormonal birth control while on testosterone with no side effects or no, that'll cause breast regrowth. Like, do not do that. And it just haven't right. been large scale studies on that or really anything other than anecdotal evidence. Um, right. and that's 
largely a grant funding issue as well because of the same issue of like, well, how many people does this really affect? Um, right. I mean, there hasn't really been any there hasn't really been any study of the long term drug interactions of hormones with anything else, which right, is, exactly. is frankly stupid is wild. Yes. because if you think about like a disease like mine, right, like right. I have an autoimmune disease. What regulates your immune system? Your fucking hormones. Right. So, uh, yeah, maybe there isn't a cure, yeah. but maybe we would know one if we actually, like, studied fucking hormones right. and how they interact with other drugs, which would be helpful for a lot of people, regardless yes. of how large the population it is right. that it helps. Like, who gives a shit, yeah. right? Right, and that's something that comes up, I think, one of the bullshit arguments that trans-inclusive feminists will make a lot is, well, sex <laughs> yeah. matters for medicine, you know? Like, right. heart attacks show up differently in women than in men. And it's like, okay, let's talk about that, you know? Right. Let's right. talk about why heart attacks show up differently for quote-unquote women. It's not because of some irreversible bone structure thing that happens in puberty. It's because of your hormones. Right. And we know, no, for it's example... Because, it's because <laughs> of your sacred female... Um, chi and identity that's why yes you're uh, also in like, energy um also actually, like what kind of uh substantive grounding do you think that contemporary medicine has in understanding like the cis female body and its drug interactions in the first place right, considering that so many well considering right. that so right. many uh for, for such a long period the history of like um medication testing was done like pretty much to the extreme exclusion of even like cis women. It was like basically just like yeah, cis women men of reproductive were age were not allowed to be in pharmaceutical studies basically until the seventies, and even then, it took twenty years for Congress to essentially enforce it. So it wasn't really until the nineties that we even started testing breast cancer medication on women like, with breast cancer, like cis female people with breast cancer right instead of cis male people with breast cancer oh my God, yeah. which does occur but is like way less common and wow amazing surprise that uh you know mortality from breast cancer goes precipitously down once we start you know <laughs> studying on studying it like on right. more people with the disease or on right, you know yes. exactly like and and i think uh, for the heart attack example, for example, which is one they always use exactly because of the history of heart attacks going undiagnosed in cisgender women, we know that after menopause, the risk of heart attacks goes up in cis women because of the fluctuations in estrogen. And right. so it's like, okay, your estrogen drops way down when you start testosterone therapy. Right. What does that do for your risk of heart attacks? How is your heart attack going right. to show up? We just don't know. There's not no, research happening. You know. No, it's it's kind of amazing how like so largely obvious the blindness is to like addressing the way that hormones interact with with any other facet of healthcare that like you can tell that it it is a structural um, anti-trans bias in the right. entire medical and research field that is like essentially trying to like play this game of being like publicly accepting but still on the clinical end, like provide zero accommodation. So it's like, we don't study hormone because like, if we study the hormones, then we legitimize like right, this thing yes. that we would rather not exist. You know, and we see yes. this in, uh, yeah. we see this in the this UK. This is uh, rather uncomfortable for us. And uh... yeah, like the UK is like, we want less trans people. Like let's close clinics and make the right. wait times longer and make sure they're really, 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 really sure to the yes. point of putting them through extreme emotional distress. And like, 
you know, years long process. And that's sort of related to the the other main opposition we get, which I don't get that often, but still sometimes get, which is like, well, if a trans person really needs an abortion, they're just going to suck it up and deal with it. And it's like, Jesus, what? <laughs> yeah, what no, I've that heard that. I've heard mean? that from, I'm not going to name names, but I've heard that from like queer people within the repro movement, actually, like cis queer Ooh. people, um, which I hate, you know? And it's like, we know that people postpone abortions already and then they get past a time when they could get an abortion because of these restrictions. This is well known among advocates for abortion rights, you know? And so, right. and so, Especially, you know, with when we're talking about things like bans past the point of eight weeks, for example, if you're not getting periods regularly because you're on testosterone and you don't know what your risk of pregnancy is, you might not even be able to get in before that ban. So it's of the Mm. utmost importance that you don't have to go through a psychological process of like denial of can I really walk into a clinic because, you know, you've got to get that as soon as fucking possible, you know? Um, So it's just and I mean, beyond also just the human rights issues if people should have a dignified and safe experience when getting an abortion, of course, which should be a priority for all healthcare providers, period. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But isn't yeah. always. I mean, there's a great piece that you wrote actually in, in 2018 called Christian Socialism from Above. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I this was the first piece of writing yours that I read. I think Charlie <laughs> sent it to me one oh, day cool. when he and no, I were good. just like, bitching about Liz Brinig. Um but it was <laughs> a favorite pastime of mine <laughs> right exactly um, Fun for all ages. It's, <laughs> so you so you wrote this um in 2018 when Phil Bryant who's the governor of Mississippi at the time signed in one of these early abortion bans was this the eight weeks one or oh no all abortions after 15 weeks in the state right. of Mississippi and after that happened a 2014 article that Liz Brinig wrote sort of came up uh, and was dug up by the internet that was right. sort of a, a social a social Democrats case for um, being pro-life. Right. Uh, yes. And and you did a fantastic job tearing it to pieces. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and in this piece, you just sort of talk about how in a lot of ways, like, you know, obviously there is the whole Christianity portion of the article, but I'm going to just put that to the side. Okay, yes. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, like on the left, we sort of have this bad habit often of sort of like taking an issue and like reframing it maybe outside like so fully outside of identity politics that it appears to be simply a class issue and you talk about how um you know attitudes like Liz Brunig's uh, ideas like about essentially just managing repro still in a almost like um carceral way right by just like criminalizing outlawing or barring behavior versus like trying to actually structurally address it not only like undermines people's safety and access to healthcare, but sort of just the movement in general that yeah like even when uh we're talking about abortion like abortion is a class issue it is a labor issue in particular and in a lot of senses like the the control over trans people's bodies and trans people being able to biologically reproduce or right, gay people yes. being able to reproduce or like cis females deciding when they're going to reproduce. Right. The, right. Or even if they want to, that this, that that decision that that controlling that decision is really about ensuring the safety of the future workforce. Right. Yes. I, I, I do not know how to recite the 14 words, thank God, but it makes me think of like the future of the white race, you know, because that is what it's yeah. about a yeah. lot of the time, you know? Yeah, um, totally. That's why you get 
so much of the anxiety about, you know, birth rates from the right wing. Um, and, and that's also why, you know, people are very concerned with abortion because of, you know, bodily autonomy. And, you know, sometimes they'll use fake racial justice arguments about it. But, you know, most right wingers are not too concerned with maternal mortality, with stillbirths, with any of these problems or with, you know, with children being fed and cared for, you know, because right. it is about the labor discipline of reproduction. It's about, you know, ensuring racial hegemony, ensuring, you know, class reproduction, that there's a functioning workforce and of course ensuring gender control and all these things are inseparable yeah i think i think this is why um it was interesting to me to see all the people reacting to the supreme court decision uh in bostock this week that uh so many people were saying oh like look 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 at this like oh the the supreme court has effectively even though the the ruling was quite narrow said that oh yes um you know sex uh in in this instance for employment uh sex discrimination uh, covers transgender people. Um, and so that should, you know, theoretically create case law to make it so that like the HHS rule from, from last week, um, which basically allowed blanket, I mean, is already obviously rampant in the United States, but like allowed for further, uh, like healthcare discrimination of trans people, um, throughout the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was very interesting to see so many people essentially like pointing to like the, the obvious contradiction here is going to make it so that like the HHS rule (laughs) could be overturned when actually they're so fundamentally consistent with each other it's like of course just like in the example that you said of course you're going to uh you you know it's it's highly ideologically consistent actually to say oh you have uh like you have the the right to work you have the right to like be part of the labor (laughs) force (laughs) or whatever um and then to turn around and say well oh you know uh but health care health provision not anyone's problem like absolutely not (laughs) right (laughs) another thing is it's the ruling about employment discrimination as sex discrimination is sort of it's structured tactically by you know the aclu lawyers who did it to use the argument that's most likely to win which in this case was basically an argument (laughs) that's actually ideologically Um, (laughs) anti-trans ironically Um, so the it's you know, it's sort of like we're going to start with the premise that trans women are men in dresses, which, you know, I don't believe, obviously. Um, but obviously. Like, and it's like you wouldn't fire a woman for wearing a dress. So therefore you're treating right. someone differently because of their male sex. So therefore it's sex discrimination, right. um, which is sort of the opposite of like incredibly law school. Incredibly yeah, yes, incredible bad law school, law school argumentation. You know, these are trans lawyers arguing it, but it is, you know, it's an argument that does not rely on a support of trans identities, which, you know, I think is why right. Gorsuch, for example, was behind it. Right, exactly. And that is compatible with sort of the religious freedom argument that's being used against trans people that's also being used against doctors providing birth control, you know. <laughs> right. That's because that's, oh, this is about providing a certain type of healthcare. And there is this idea that all trans healthcare, all healthcare of trans patients is specialized. Um, right. This idea, you know, <laughs> trans people call it, you know, trans broken arm syndrome of like, you go in the ER with a broken arm and they're like, have you considered this might be because of your testosterone therapy? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> or they're just like, we don't know how to treat this. We're going to send you to endocrinology. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You're sending yeah. down to Dr. Nick in endocrinology. <laughs> right. Hollywood upstairs college. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, on some level, I guess I don't have much faith in, you know, anti-employment discrimination rulings. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I think 
there's a lot that can be said even within the repro world about employment discrimination. Uh, shout out to the blog Repro Jobs, which is really good. <laughs> I think ultimately, <laughs> you know, the answer is own, can only happen in workers organizing. That's, you know, really the only salient way to prevent discrimination in a country that allows at will firing, at will employment. Right. Right, um, exactly. right. And I do know, you know, I do have friends who, for example, work at extremely conservative, extremely homophobic trade unions and are out as non-binary and have a terrible shitty experience, but still mm-hmm. have their jobs because it's a union job, you know, and even if their union reps don't like them, it's their job to advocate for them and make sure they don't get fired for a stupid reason. <laughs> and that, you know, there is some protection in that, even if, you know, we can say all we want about the the trade unions in the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's, I, I think it's really interesting how in a lot of ways, like the the more you zoom out on a lot of healthcare issues and issues of like access and bias in like both healthcare and health finance, like it somehow always has to do with like continuing the workforce too. Oh yeah, for and, sure. And, and keeping things sort of like as simple as possible for capital. And, and part of that is like cultural or whatever, but I, I think in a large sense, it's, it's actually like generated actively by um, the structure of a lot of these things, right. you know, like what we were talking about with like billing and stuff. If you make these sort of bad faith arguments, like, yeah, maybe you're getting a symbolic victory at the end of it or like a couple of good like press headlines and several hundred thousand dollars worth of donations as a result. <laughs> like, <laughs> But like you're also doing incredible damage by uh, using an argument that is anti-trans right. in order to like advance it, you know. Right. Yes. And, and there's no reason that can't be used as a press in a violent way later you know exactly Um, yeah it's amazing how much damage people are willing to do in the name of like really banal limp incrementalism you know um and i think going back a little bit um when we're talking about the role of healthcare in continuing the workforce i think that's why so many social reproductive social reproduction feminists like Titi Padakaria, um, Kato Griffiths have focused on nurses' struggles, teachers' struggles, um, yeah. because they know the important role that people who could strike at the point of reproduction have over the entire workforce as sort of a logistical chokehold. Yeah, at exactly. the same time, people like Kirsten Monroe, who um, is a Twitter friend and to some extent, some queer social reproduction theory implicitly has also critiqued the the like strategically important lionization of nurses and teachers along the lines of like, if you're doing a strike, we don't have to be like, yeah, your labor's important and also fuck you, your cops. You know, right. but but you know, obviously social reproduction refers to not only the reproduction of the workforce, but also the reproduction of capitalist ideology, you know, capitalist values in sort of the um the sociological sense, not the purely economic sense. And when you're doing that, you know, you have to think about the regulatory role that nurses do play, which shows up in, Mm -hmm. you know, nurses or doctors who will deny an abortion to a patient who's going to die if they don't get an abortion or, you know, who will deny trans healthcare to someone because of their religious beliefs, you know, or a pharmacist who's not going to fill a testosterone script, even though the doctor has said like, you know, you get this. And 
I think that's sort of, that's a tension I've been grappling with personally. I think especially as we talk about abolition because of recent George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests, as we talk about abolition as something broader than just tearing down prison walls, as we think about, you know, abolition of psychiatric incarceration, we have to think about nurses as people with a lot of capacity for care and good, but also how the idea of care can be weaponized against working class and like lumpen people and, you know, sick and disabled people and racialized people, et cetera. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is like pretty amazing and sometimes you'll see like psychiatrist Twitter someone will <laughs> yes. brag about having like 5150 to patient right and wow. like all of their okay. colleagues are silent but like the patient advocacy side like yes you know ratios them immediately right, but their yes. colleagues are like yeah. radio silence no defense nor condemnation though and right. and I think in a lot of senses like we've talked about this sort of like off and on but just the idea that um um, in in a lot of ways that the actual function of healthcare is to m- take a body and medicalize it in order right. to get it back to work. Right. Um, and that disability in a lot of ways and like why disabled people have been sort of excluded from a lot of groups historically has been that like our labor power has been taken away from us by being disabled and that that means that we don't have that leverage anymore right under capitalism you know and ultimately you can have the most trans-friendly er you can have everyone gender you correctly in the hospital but if you're being you know 5150 if you're being involuntarily committed that's still a experience that strips you of your autonomy and frankly you know i i'm probably gonna regret saying this on a podcast but i had a recent psychiatric hospitalization and i was you know it was one of those things where they were like okay admit yourself voluntarily or so you know i I get it i get in there and it's like uh, this is gracie square where paul robeson was hospitalized fun fact um (laughs) i get in there and i'm pissed and i'm like yelling and shit um and they're like well why are you upset you know we gave you your own room we're using your pronouns and i'm like oh my god don't understand what do you not get here right we made your cage so nice we made it exactly how you wanted it noah what's your problem right and then another trans patient comes and they're like oh what do we do there's two of them now you know we only have one single room Um, (laughs) 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 which is just you know even the like you know the the nyc hospitals that have been given all the trainings still have (laughs) right still have goofy shit and also harmful shit you know like for me i'm at this point a pretty passing trans guy so my experience was overall you know kind of kind of neat because you know despite it sucks being coerced in hospitalization it was also like i was only out to the doctor so i got to be like oh this is an interesting social experience you know because i'm so out as trans (laughs) in my non-medicalized life um right but at the same time it was clear that like, you know, the doctors were as good to me as, you know, someone who's forced to do a regulatory role in that way can be. But it was clear they had sort of been given a trans 101, but didn't really understand any of it. Because <laughs> because of actually the way the medical record system works, I was listed as, you know, Noah Zizanis, he, him, male in the system. And they also got, you know, that I was a trans male on my records. And some people didn't really get what that meant. So they'd right. be like, oh, Noah, you know, is there another name you'd rather I use for you? And I'd be like, oh, oh my God. Oh, no, my name's cool, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Did that feel great or awful to be like reverse clocked? <laughs> right. I mean, it was, it was weird. It was just like, I was just like, what's happening here, you know? And then like, I mean, you know, being in a hospital sort of forces you out of your bubble. So I got, right. I got patients being like, being like, so are you a man or a woman? And I'd be like, a man. And I'd be like, oh, you know, sorry, dude. I just couldn't tell because of your haircut. 
just be like yeah man i need a haircut you know um so (laughs) at least they're trying i guess right right yeah so i mean at least we've gotten to the point (laughs) where like 1942 other other people in an impatient setting are embarrassed for having been transphobic and try and walk it back i don't know i actually no i actually think they didn't even realize they were being transphobic like they just thought i was a cis guy with like a weird haircut um because after that it was like so are you gay or something (laughs) it was like yeah no i'm i'm definitely gay and that was weird to me too that anyone could think i'm a heterosexual man (laughs) y'all are hearing my voice on this podcast right now you know um but yeah and then and then i guess you know with this this trans kid coming in later who's like an 18 year old you know i i go up to them because i'm like hey you know you've got purple hair like what's up with you you know <laughs> and i'm like surreptitiously like so what are your pronouns you know um and then try to do some advocacy which ultimately is a form of social reproduction that i think is very specific to that psych hospital setting where patients are mm-hmm. doing advocacy and care work for other patients you know often along a sort of fake like high functioning low functioning binary but like right you know i'd I'd go to a friendly social worker and be like, hey, so this is going on, you know, or I'd talk someone through sort of a psychotic episode because the nurses are just kind of chilling at their station or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and even if they weren't, you know, they'd just like give a Benadryl and a Haldol, you know, they're not going to actually right. do therapy because that's not what happens at psych hospitals. Right. You know? exactly. um, it only happens if you're doing it with other patients. Right. I mean, exactly. this is it. It's funny because that's actually kind of the founding context of like SPK in Germany in the 70s was like socialist patient collective. Yeah, the patients were organizing and demanding autonomy over their care, not, you know, to be sort of under the supervision and like total control of the like medicalized like expert system that, you know, was just sort of like further reinforcement of like the sort of managers and capitalism etc and it's amazing because it's like unfortunately we have not really progressed in our mental health care whatsoever since the 70s at at all almost right it's gotten uh, more (laughs) humane looking yes maybe yeah they've they've developed better better uh pitch decks (laughs) a conversation i've had with you know recent death penal guests Panel guest Nathan Tankus was, you know, specifically about show favorite <laughs> my boyfriend. Um, in the context of the job guarantee, like, you know, how can we get people who already have experience providing healthcare because they've been supporting other patients in these contexts? You know, right? How mm-hmm. can we get you know accessible employment that can get people skilled up, get people actually able to be financially supported for providing care, be just you know fundamentally supported instead of discouraged instead of disempowered for you know helping each other and helping ourselves um Mm -hmm. and we sort of you know we had the peer recovery movement way back when and that's been institutionalized in this way of like oh we're gonna give you 13 dollars an hour to like you know talk about your addiction story and how you found god but there's no (laughs) the idea of like a patient becoming a doctor or a psychologist is still something that's very, very stigmatized, very frowned upon. You know, when I was a psych major, everyone warned me, like, do not talk about your mental illness history on your applications. You know, I... Right. I talk about my transness in sort of this like identity politics way of like, I am a good contribution to your institution, but like it's, it's different <laughs> with disability and especially, you know, any sort of stigmatized illness. And that can be, you know, that can be mental illness. That can be various kinds of invisible illnesses, STIs, HIV, et cetera. Um, 
And so there's been this movement of like, okay, we need we need more black doctors, we need more trans doctors, but the idea of like we need more crazy doctors is like whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, um I've heard from some of our listeners before who are like in PhD programs that like advisors um like specifically specifically in social work, psychiatry and sociology that they had some are rather like mental health condition that was like divulged yes, either with yeah. their consent or not to their knowledge right. to their advisor and the advisor calls them in and has like an academic standards meeting yes, on the basis yeah. of the meeting is that the PhD candidate has a history of depression. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I mean, and even like, I think there's some, there's some knowledge among, you know, some very repressed knowledge among medical professionals that like patients do know about our own lives. Um, and obviously <laughs> right. that gets filtered, obviously that gets filtered through their race lenses, their class lenses. But like when I was in Gracie square, you know, they had a partnership with Columbia medical school, which is somewhere I would probably never get into because I've publicly talked about mental illness and they have technical standards, but they were like, so we're going to bring some medical students in and we just want to like, let them do their case study. Cause we think you're really like articulate and, and <laughs> psychologically minded and it'll be really informative for them i um, mean you know they'll get experience working with trans patients oh, and i'm like cool i'm God. bored you know i've read all my books so like i'll talk to these people but like mm -hmm. you know i'm like being a source of education for these med students and still totally shut out not totally shut out in that i do like medical research but you know again i know i could never be a psychiatrist, you know? Right. No, I mean, it, it pisses me off so much when people are like, oh, we should be paying you for this. Because, oh, God, like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's like one of the things that I always try and do because I feel like it's like my responsibility yes. kind of as like a chronically ill person is right. to like allow student doctors to practice and try things for the first time and like trust them, you right. know? Yeah. And I think it's important. I think it's important and then it gives you an opportunity to like really form like a memory that's going to go with that doctor for the rest of their career, possibly. Yes. And it's, you know, it's something that I, like, always am very happy to do, even if it means I get, like, an extra couple of sticks when they're trying to do a lumbar puncture, you know, which is incredibly painful, but it's worth it, right? But then to turn around and be like, oh, we should be paying you for this. It's so funny. You're paying us. And it's like, <laughs> fuck you very much. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I'm sure you'll go and tell this story at, uh, you know, nice dinner that uh, you'll be able to pay for. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. You're so valuable. You're so valuable. Um, right. You're not an expert. You're crazy. Please leave. You know, right. yes, like, exactly. Or um, you're only valuable as a subject, not when you have agency, you know. Right. And I think... I don't know. There's some some like bureaucratization, professionalization and maybe just lack of experience because because crazy people are systematically disallowed in the medical professions. There are so so many things that are just obvious to you as a psych patient that like doctors just can't or won't see. Or if they do see it, they're like, well, we can't really do anything about it because it's structural, you know? Um, right. Like something unique about sort of the New York, New York system is how, just how many developmentally disabled people um, end up in the psychiatric system for various reasons mm -hmm. involving just lack of housing, you know, um, and obviously, you know, psychiatrists who are focused on axis one and axis two mental illnesses are not focused on developmental disabilities. Um, right. And so there's this level of like ridiculous misdiagnosis of like, you know, a women with like obvious Down syndrome being diagnosed with like borderline personality disorder because she's being abused, you know? Oh my God. And, and it's just like, it's, it's sort of like, LOL, it's sort of crazy making just being like, okay, how, how are you 
what is the lens <laughs> through which you're seeing this? Like, I get that you probably are seeing so many patients a day. Your caseload is over the top, but like, what happened to your critical thinking skills, you know? Right. No, exactly. Because ultimately, like in so many situations, like what ends up happening is the patient is like treated as less than human. And right. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because I feel like in a lot of ways, like the barriers to like certain types of like people with disabilities or trans people to both employment and uh, the right to reproduce or like take care of your children once you decide to reproduce and your protection from discrimination being like technically enshrined in law, but sort of on you to enforce. (laughs) Um, It's fascinating because it's like in a lot of ways, like I think they sort of see or they, I think like, as a society, we sort of see like a medicalized body as like a failed body almost in a sense. I mean, one of the turf arguments for, you know, for why children shouldn't be allowed to take, you know, to take puberty blockers or, you know, especially hormones is like, well, they're going to be a medical patient forever. Right. You know, and like, and a medical patient is just the worst thing you can be. (laughs) Can't have it. Um, Isn't the term turf argument a sort of contradiction? This is sort of... (laughs) I mean, they've got analytical philosophers, so they they can argue. They just... (laughs) um, um, But, like, it just doesn't have to make sense, you know, to, like, human minds. Um, Right. It only has to make sense to them. Right, yes. Um, But I guess... And that's the other thing, right? It's like going back to sort of the difference between a reproductive rights and reproductive justice lens is sort of like, okay, we can focus on even, and this is considered a reproductive justice question of like, okay, can trans people get abortions? But going Mm -hmm. beyond that, you know, there's stuff about the right to parent of like, okay, hypothetically, you know, trans people can be parents. But if I don't want to, I think about this for myself, you know, if I don't want to be pregnant, which like God no, and I have the various traumas and invalidations of like existing as a trans body mind in this world, you know, I'm not going to be allowed to adopt or, you know, even foster a child because mental illness is a risk. Whereas, you know, cisgender heterosexual people rightly have no barriers on, you know, biological reproduction, but the fact that this, (laughs) you know, that having a diagnosis is necessarily the decider of whether you're equipped to be a parent or not is ridiculous. And obviously is going to disproportionately impact trans people because as much as, you know, sort of the respectability politicians want to deny it, trans people are more likely to be mentally ill because of what existing in a trans person as a trans person in the world is, you know, because it's an inherently invalidating experience, even if no other violence happens to you to be, you know, to be told you must be this gender, you must be this gender and have that sort of violently enforced on you. Right. I mean, one of the things that I've heard from people in the UK in particular is that because of the UK's particular path to being able to access HRT, you essentially do have to get a mental health diagnosis, which is then on your chart. And then during COVID, that would affect triage decisions. Oh, wow. Because not only are you like, then, uh, like, transgender in your chart or whatever and that's seen as a mental health condition so that's like a point against you like it's also that because of like bias we just like consider like any medicalized body to be like less viable right Right. regardless of whether that's true and there's so many layers of reproductive control and just gendered assumptions associated with any mental illness that gets further complicated you know by transness I think about like a few years ago you know before I was out as trans, but when I knew I was trans, I knew, you know, I had no intention of getting pregnant, that if I got pregnant, I would get an abortion as soon as possible. I had a medical provider who would not put me on the patch instead of an IUD unless I switched from Paxil to a different drug because she's like, oh, the risk of birth defects. 
Um, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'd get a fucking abortion. Birth defects aren't a problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, same thing happens to, to cis women, but also trans people who are, and it's specifically a problem because testosterone causes acne. With Accutane, you need two methods of birth control. And abstinence from PIV is just one method of birth control. Um, okay. So I've known, <laughs> I've known, you know, Trans guys who categorically do not use those body parts for sex in that way have to go on completely unnecessary birth control, you know, because they're oh like, God. they're like, oh, well, you know, condoms aren't consistent enough or just like, and that's, that's a response that was created in good faith because of, you know, the patient's right to know about birth defects because of the horrible Accutane lawsuits right. and, you know, just bad things that happen to people who wanted to be parents but instead of just being like okay we can let the patient know and let them make an informed decision about their bodies and their risk for pregnancy they were like well you know women can't really know if they are going to get pregnant or not you know these people Mm -hmm. just get baby fever you know or whatever (laughs) Um, and so like and so there's just this these ridiculous standards for that even or for or for psych drugs you know there's this there's still the assumption that you can or should go off all psych drugs if you want to get pregnant because of, you know, risks of the fetus and less consideration for like risks of the person housing the fetus of fucking dying. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I um, mean, it's, it's funny too, because it's like in so many instances, like when drugs are not recommended with uh, pregnancy, it's, it's not necessarily that the drug is bad. It's just that we don't study drugs on pregnant females and we don't study any drugs on like pregnant trans men or any trans men at all so (laughs) you know the the first study of of transgender men who experienced pregnancy was 2014 right and that was like an you know essentially started as an informal survey right and i think in a lot of ways people expect this research just to have been done or whatever we're told like that are are you know united colors of benetton democracy (laughs) has you know a place for everyone at the table but you know uh so don't don't worry like every we've considered everyone we've mentioned everyone but in actuality like no one is actually studying this and the institutional bias goes all the way up to nih funding and it oh man yeah i have a i have a friend who is at columbia nursing school um kodiak soled is her name she's a cis queer woman and she's doing work specifically on pregnant trans men and on social support and just the pregnancy process. And I talked to her about, you know, the process of getting NIH grant funding for that. And it's just like, it was, she had to do this weird workaround of like, oh, well, we're studying social support, which affects postpartum depression, which affects maternal mortality, um, which there was funding for because of a lot of activism from black cis women around maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. And before there wasn't even that. So, but now she has to do that kind of workaround of like, oh, well, the social support research is more bodily applicable to other marginalized groups. Um, right. Which in and of itself is a huge advance with the grant funding. But you can't just be like, oh, we're going to help trans people because like who the fuck cares about them? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No. What what faster way to get your um, like grant application just immediately sent to the trash? Probably. Right. I remember telling her about like all these ideas I had about like, you know, trans social support, social networks, you know social reproduction and she's just like how are you gonna get funding for that i'm like fair (laughs) 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 and so i'm luckily you know i've gotten myself this nice little niche of working with large 
already existing data sets, which needs a whole lot less funding than trying to do a whole ass survey, you know, if you're just doing the data analysis and then like interpretation, <laughs> integrating the theory, et cetera. Right. I mean, it's funny because it's like, in a way, like the collection of like gender and sexuality data in like, um, you know, government forms seems like a very small thing. But like when you think about actually like, how that component affects what we're able to even like know and study about trans people right. in America in general, it starts to feel a lot more violent and and frankly rude that people are at all resistant to any sort of change in this arena. Yes. You know, right? And like you know the 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 good people over at the Pride study bring it all the way back to this first discussion. Um, they have <laughs> done one of the first like really large scale survey sets of LGBTQ people more broadly and you know with specific subsections dedicated to trans people and because of that there's a lot more opportunity to do to do research on Mm -hmm. just just data analysis of all these different cross factors of like okay what is the role of violence on experiences of autoimmune disorders which are two questions that are asked for example in lgbtq Mm -hmm. populations so like Big props to the Pride study. I'm a huge fanboy for them. Um, but <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe you can like put the link for people to sign up as participants or whatever. It's all online. So, um, but yeah. Um, but still, of course, that's you know that's individually funded. Not individually, but that's university funded grant research through right. UCSF. You know, a medical institution that that I respect. But like, that's definitely not government things. And especially with HHS ruling specifically around research, there's so much restriction on, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember where we're at with like that King decree about, um, about like gender identity (laughs) in grant funding words. But I know there's, you know, there's so many, there's so many blocks to like, you know, if you say the name, you make it real or whatever about trans people existing. No, exactly. And, and it's like something so simple as like not, not being able to collect this data and know that it's coming from like a trans person versus a cis person is like such an effective way of absolutely discouraging the feeling of participation in government at every level because you know it's absolutely it's so fucking frustrating because it's it's so it would have been so easy to just fix it but that would involve (laughs) you know deciding that trans people have value in America and there are <laughs> yeah, people I that mean, are just so unwilling to do that. So right. yeah. And I mean, not just here. Yes. And I think, you know, the census itself does not still does not define its terms about sex. Um, Burfus, you know, behavioral risk factors survey did actually update their sex standards so that it's internally consistent. You know, they, they say like, you know, sex defined on your original birth certificate, which like oh, yeah. good for them, you know, finally. Um, but The census is pretty archaic in the way that it, it's like does all categories, right? Oh like yeah. The, I mean the census, even like the census race category is oh, just yeah. like for, for such a long time, like had the, like had the one drop rule, like long past the point where like that was yeah i've encoded so much um census survey data just in you know in stata statistical programming and the shenanigans i've had to do with census race categories is just wild um in order to get some analysis that makes sense you know because they have you know they have the hispanic ethnicity question separate which sort of makes sense but then you sort of have to make sense of like 
okay, do we treat that as its own race category? Do we treat, you know, black Hispanic people, white Hispanic people as different race categories? You know, how do we, most organizations end up on some, this sort of like the non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, Hispanic other descriptions, which is like, (laughs) which is infuriating itself, you know, but like, um, yeah, I don't know. There's obviously there's a lot of, you know, sociological research on classification, but there's a huge gap between that and I guess the actual day-to-day bureaucrats who are like administering the census and the questions I ask on the online census and whatnot, you know. I was just like, and I posted this on Twitter to to sort of piss off my demographer followers. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm answering mail on the census. Like, I know what you're asking me and I don't care because um, like, <laughs> um, you're not telling me what you mean so like why should i yeah like how do well, i know I, what I mean, you're is, asking, you know? <laughs> well and it's also the problem like there's this huge push i know sort of like internationally uh which then the trump administration sort of appropriated and instrumentalized like that uh oh because it's so difficult like because of like response non-response problems in the sense is like we sh- there's like a there's there's a sort of small movement to like push like oh it's really methodologically sophisticated if you have good enough administrative data to just go to an administrative database census uh or like a mixed census in that way it's like well then then you just then these problems just calcify uh, because then you're not even yeah as long as as long as the administrative data has bias baked into it you're not fixing that at all in the way that people represent themselves in the census so and that's historically how a lot of trans research has been done you know anything that's not sort of a qualitative small sample research was usually done by like, okay, we're going to look at the Kaiser Permanente HMO data that they so graciously granted us and see who (laughs) is listed as female and is taking testosterone. And like all those people must be trans. So then we can look at various health conditions (laughs) among them. Right. Um, And (laughs) it's like, there's so many issues with that because not every trans person is on hormones, you know, like, right. Um, just um and obviously you know this is only representative of individuals within the kaiser permanente health system which is not a representative sample and then you're also what questions you can ask is structurally determined by kaiser permanente this episode should be sponsored by kaiser permanente by the way retroactively this episode is sponsored maybe we can record the outro or the intro again Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly limiting and it's really frustrating because it like the answer is very clear to the question of like, oh, how many people really need this? Like, how right, many people yeah. do we really need to do this for? It's like we don't know, right? Because yeah, because you won't let us do it, so fuck off. <laughs> and I'm very I'm very sympathetic to trans people who are like who are resistant to legibility. You know, there's some really good Afro pessimist critiques of legibility politics, and I, you know, I'm really like. I'm inclined to those politics naturally because I'm an abolitionist, because I hate the state, because I don't trust the police, you know. Um, And at the same (laughs) time, you know, as a demographer and just as like someone who sees the way numbers get used, I'm like, okay, as long as we don't have any kind of counting, people can just be like, well, trans people barely exist. So like, why do we need to fund trans services, you know? Um, And that's, it's a double-edged sword, obviously. And like with, you know, the trans tipping point and whatever has come repression (laughs) and has come backlash. And it's just always sort of the dialectic of progress or whatever the fuck. Um, Right. No, exactly. I guess the other sort of interesting structural question for me about the interrelationship between trans healthcare and abortion care and contraception is, 
a fine like a fine a financial decision making process of right. okay so we know that there are these you know these stigmatized forms of care that sort of seem like they go together just like some intuitive sense of like yeah trans healthcare abortion it's all it's all stigma it's all you know we have that and then also we know that our right to provide abortions could be denied at any time so like how are we going to keep this business running you know <laughs> because <laughs> as much as i love and respect abortion care providers especially independent providers they are businesses that have to stay in business <laughs> and so part yeah. of just making a smart you know smart business keeping f- for your abortion clinic is like we got to we got to diversify here <laughs> you know so i think that's right. as much as i'm like yay to clinics trying to figure out like oh how do we be trans friendly there's also sort of the cynical aspect of it or like understandable, but also just structurally determined by the needs of the market, you know, um, need to be like, okay, we got to provide some other kind of healthcare quick, you know, we're doing birth control. Like what else can we do? And like, okay, trans people have trouble getting healthcare. Abortion's hard. We're already used to death threats. Let's do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's kind of what a lot of people just expect to have. What were you saying? Like if, Someone said if trans people need an abortion, they'll just get one. Right. Yeah. That yeah. Right. I mean, like, like get one wh- where? <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> How? Right. I mean, and that's a problem for anyone, you know, for cis people too. And like, it's not like you can shop around based on your local queer Facebook group to find like the right abortion clinic. We don't have that luxury right. in the US, you know? Um, right. We can't, I mean, some places, you know, in Maryland, I probably could do that, but New York City, maybe. But like, if I'm in, south dakota i'm not gonna be like oh i'll just go to my you know round the corner trans-friendly abortion clinic um (laughs) and so it is really important that the people you do you know drive two hours and cross state lines or whatever to go to are gonna treat you like a human especially if you got to come back there the next day yeah exactly i mean i think it is like when we like hear people like call for very incremental demands in terms of like changing our health finance system or in advocating for like abortion access, you know, that like when we when we accept very small incrementalism saying, oh, if we ask for too much abortion access, they'll take it away. Right. Like that 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 austerity mindset in real time does like really actual big harm. Absolutely. And to people in real time trying to access care like now. Right. And that's some of the, you know, some of the non, non turfy, non like quote unquote ideological, but of course still already ideological resistance you get from the really mainstream repro orgs is like, well, Mm -hmm. we'd love to say pregnant people instead of women, but like abortion's so at risk anyway. Like what about the polling, you know? Um, Right. And that's that again, that austerity politics of like, oh, we don't want to get too weird. You know, abortion should be a bread and butter issue is like, it's, it's just, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's just like, not even in touch with the reality of the situation on the ground because I can't imagine anyone who's like, you know, I was really cool with abortion before, but now that they're like starting to talk about trans people, like I think a fetus is a person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not a hearts and minds. Oh my God. Like that's not a thing where it's the hearts and minds really being turned off uh, yeah. from the issue. Yeah. Right. Well, who knows? Maybe Sean McElwee is just waiting with a pole to enlighten <laughs> us all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, and they, 
people like to trot out organizations like to trot out these polls about like, you know, people are much more ideologically neutral on abortion than expected. And, you know, that's why they're pushable and pullable. And that's why we got to vote Joe Biden and go for the moderate angle or right. whatever. But I think we've seen time and time again, that it just doesn't fucking work. And that's why the reproductive justice movement has been pushing sort of these large democratic aligned organizations to be like, no, fuck you. We got to be about racial justice. We got to be about trans justice. We got to mm-hmm. be about economic justice, abolition, et cetera. Right. Yeah, fighting the, the democratic party's logic of let's just pick off. It's very easy to pick off these segments, give them <laughs> something symbolic and don't worry. They will never act with any sort of solidarity. That's mm-hmm. absurd. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, like counteracting that logic is is a sort of skeleton key. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we when you keep things so scarce, like you incentivize people to f- to fight each other for resources. Like, I mean, I feel like the best example of that was like um, National Council on Independent Living had a scandal like last year where they were um, there was footage of their like board president at the time. He like later resigned in a like a closed door meeting prepping to go talk to members of Congress saying, okay, so here's the line. Like if they don't support us, the line is that Democrats care more about illegal immigrants than they care about disabled people. And it's like absolutely disgusting to watch like a, these, these organizations like tell you these nonprofits, like tell you over and over again, like, no, 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 no. Like once we like have power or (laughs) once we have enough funding, like We'll make everything right until right. then. Right. Um, we it's have like, like Charlie Brown with the football. Um, right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, um, I mean, the, the same thing basically played out at Planned Parenthood, where you know Dr. Leona Wynn, former president, or was you know her whole line was like, abortion should not be a political issue. Abortion is healthcare. Let's not politicize this. Let's not make it sectarian. And because of that, that was a big reason of her line of like we don't have to get crazy with this pregnant people stuff Oh God! was because, you know, that makes it a culture wars issue. And I'm like, I'm sorry, abortion oh is already God. a culture wars issue. Seriously? I don't know where you've been. <laughs> yeah, the last it's like the nineties, right? Yeah, like, um, the two thousands, the present. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and there's, it's like, well, abortion is healthcare and healthcare is never political. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. we'll just dress it up as a healthcare yeah. issue. They'll never see. Right, yeah. uh, or like, there's this language, Briefs like okay, which I I've been following. You know, like we don't call it abortion; we call it abortion care. Um, like, <laughs> oh my god! Because abortion Cause just it, sounds too nasty. No, you gotta um, you gotta make it sound like it could become an industry. Also, like if there could be products associated with it, then the blank you know. care space. Getting into the blank care space. Yeah, oh, maybe the real trick is that you know we we try and turn trans healthcare into both a healthcare product, but also a maybe like active wear line of some kind. Um, I think that's actually like, that's actually another, I'm always my, I'm always being very galaxy brain about the parallels between trans healthcare and abortion. But one of the other things is that, you know, the, the right wing on trans healthcare and the right wing on abortion have this idea that there's these like shadowy big money groups supporting abortion and you know, <laughs> transing children or whatever. And it's like, those aren't particularly profitable forms of healthcare. Right. You know, testosterone and estrogen are, have been generic for a long time. Um, yeah, they're really cheap. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess the, you know, the like, the like devil shadow Pizzagate money is all in, giving the trans children abortions so yeah all those trans children out there 
um, living their best lives with freedom, which I'm sure exists. (laughs) Actually, like, yeah, I wish there was like a bunch of money somewhere like doing (laughs) that, but that's not happening. Right. I mean, like abortion (laughs) funds and trans healthcare funds are just scrapping. You know, there's the joke about trans people passing the same $20 around until we die. Um, But like, (laughs) and there's these narratives around regret too of like, especially especially with young people but in general i think because women Mm -hmm. and trans people are infantilized there's this idea of like well what if they regret it you know and it's like well i regret having a sister under puberty and some people regret having babies (laughs) Um, which like (laughs) that doesn't mean that like yeah and that doesn't mean that like we should force everyone on puberty blockers or like not let anyone have children anymore you know (laughs) but that's considered natural and that's considered like beyond I mean, not necessarily having children is not considered beyond reproach, depending on race and class, et cetera. But there is this naturalization of non-intervention of like, we don't want to do anything about this fetus. We don't want to do anything about this puberty. And if you do it, it's because it's because you're making this rash decision that's irreversible and like going to ruin your life and just, you know, all those narratives. And and also I don't know, one like, that you're not qualified to make under right, the, yeah. like expertise establishment as well. Right. Um, and something very insidious for me, I think, is Lisa Lippman, the person who, the scholar, whatever, who wrote that rapid onset gender dysphoria study where she did a survey of parents on anti-trans forums and was like, what do you think about your daughters becoming transsexuals? Um, (laughs) Where they basically decided like, oh yeah, it was all, you know, social influence, et cetera. They're traumatized, all that great stuff. Um, She, before she pivoted to her interest in desistance and detransition she was an abortion stigma researcher so frankly you know my my galaxy brain theory is that she knows about regret narratives she knows about oh they're not able to make this informed decision and she knows that they work i mean that's not a galaxy i I don't think that's that's a galaxy brain i think that's just how research works right like one thing led to another right it's like yeah yeah, that's like a job interview and she's listing (laughs) her skills like regret narrative ability to manipulate data um ability to be a bigot without appearing to be anti-trans openly you know yeah and i think there's this attitude in in the like repro ngo sphere of, you know, like, well, none of us could be transphobes. You know, we're, we're liberals, we're feminists. You know? <laughs> I had to, I had to explain to a, to a senior scientist at my old work that TERFs existed. And in the same conversation, she was like, well, we can't really let you senior author a paper, you know, wow. um, <laughs> like, we, we need expertise. Oh, Noah, thank you so much for coming today. I don't yeah, thank keep you for you having longer. me. <laughs> it's great talking to y'all. Yeah, um, thanks. This is a I blast. Know. It's like uh-huh. way overdue because I, I think it was like after we were in the New Inquiry Men supplement together. Oh, like, yeah, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, we will also link to the IBA study in okay, the description cool. as well. Um, it's very accessible. Everyone should read. Uh, <laughs> Thank, thank you so you. much for coming. I think uh, yeah. with that, <laughs> cool. thank you for listening. We do two episodes a week. So if you can support the show at patreon.com slash death pod, we appreciate it and can't do this without you. And I think with that, we'll call it a day. Medicare for all now, solidarity forever and stay alive another week.